Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, amen. It is a special joy and a privilege for me on Sunday mornings to be able to be in the sanctuary as the band leads us. And I know that it is going to be a remarkably memorable season that we all look back on because we're going to have all this beautiful content that we've been able to live stream and record. Um, But I'm also grateful to be one of the select few, not to rub it in, but who I get to be here and experience this beautiful worship from our from our worship ministry. So thank you all for your faithful leadership in this season. Well, friends, again, as it is every week, it is a joy and a privilege for me to be with you even through this separation or divide that we may feel through the digital space, but we are grateful for this technology and for those in our community who have worked really hard to make this a rich experience for us every Sunday. Again, if you're a guest with us, we do. We want to know that you're here. Please take a quick minute and fill out that check-in form. And the same goes for our members and our regular attenders. It is just so helpful for us to have those check-in forms um, completed so that throughout the week we can, we can shepherd the flock and, and know who all is tuning in and participating with us and to lift up your prayer requests and to welcome new folks to the community. And if this is your first Sunday with us, it uh, might be helpful for you to know that we are six weeks into a teaching series that we've been on a journey through, and we have named it Aspire. And the basic premise of this series is really rooted and grounded in the very beginning of our scriptures and the basic notion that our Jewish and Christian traditions lean heavily into, that being that human beings, we are actually made, formed, crafted in the image of the crafter, of the maker, of the creator, in the image of God. We are, by nature, a part of the family of God from the moment we came into being, into existence. God is not this complete, radically other reality, but we actually have a familial relationship with the one who made us, which means that if we want to learn as humans how to be in the world, what we are to aspire to be, one of the best places for us to start is to look and to reflect on the God of our tradition our creator, our divine parent. And we've walked through these different, these different reflections of God, from God being community in the Trinity to God having a dream of a world and then taking that dream and crafting it into a vision that God then built out into the reality that we know with human sentient beings on a planet in a universe to last Sunday and a God who we see in scripture is incredibly resilient with human beings. As we often veer away from God's best, God's direction that God would have us to go in as a collective or as individuals, we don't see a God who cuts and runs and and leaves us to our own devices, but we see a God who continually throughout scripture leans in to humanity and seeks us out and continues resiliently 
seeking to be in community with us and to bring about the best for us and with us, which brings us to this morning and our subject of healing. Well, the idea that the God that we image, that we mirror, that we are called to reflect in the world, God is resilient and resilient in God's work of healing. Healing humanity, healing us, healing and mending our world. Healing even in the midst of us continuing to break things. God is at work. And this morning we're going to reflect on this aspect of God and what it might have to say to us as human beings aspiring to be what God dreams we might become in our lives and in our world. And to do this, we're going to read from one of the Gospels, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to reflect this morning on the life of the Christ at the very beginning of his ministry. And again, with the theme of healing, there's a plethora of texts I could preach from, but I was drawn to this one for some very specific reasons that I hope become apparent as I work through the message. So friends, I invite you now to adopt a posture of receptivity as I read from Scripture, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And as you listen, I invite you to listen for the word of God for us today. Luke writes, Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. Report about him began to spread throughout all the surrounding country. Jesus began to teach in their synagogues, and he was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So Jesus unrolled the scroll, and he, he found a place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke then tells us that Jesus rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on Jesus. Jesus then began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke goes on that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do you hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard that you did over in Capernaum? Jesus went on to say, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was severe famine over all the land. Yet, Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There also were many lepers in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When the crowd in Jesus' hometown heard all of this in the synagogue, they were filled with rage. They got up and they drove him out of town. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. 
so that they might hurl him off a cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, healer, I ask on this morning that the words that I have prepared this week for this time might indeed be your word for your people in this time, God, and I pray that as I preach them, you would speak through them, and where and as necessary, you would speak in spite of me. And God, in this time, I pray that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts spread across this time, this planet, and this week, pray that all of it would be good, right, pleased, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our healer. In the name of the Christ, we pray, and everyone typed, amen. Well, for those of you who know me relatively well, then you probably know that I'm not much of an equestrian, and this is not for any particular reason other than the fact that I just have not had a lot of exposure to stables and to horses in my life. I've had some really good friends and we've had some parishioners that are really into horse riding, but I've just never sort of been in that place that I've gotten into horses. Didn't grow up with them. But my therapist actually taught me something I did not know about horses, something that I'd never heard before. And maybe if you're a horse person, an equestrian, then this is something you've heard before. But my therapist introduced me to the phrase pride flesh. Maybe some of you have heard of this, pride flesh. And I'm going to come back to this at the end of the message, but... What I find particularly fascinating about pride flesh is that it is this biological response in horses to when they experience trauma on the outside of their body to their skin, most specifically, more often than not, the, the part of their leg from their knees to the ground, when they, when they experience deep cuts or trauma, and when these cuts and these traumas aren't addressed properly by a medical professional, by a veterinarian, or by an equestrian who knows how to treat a horse's wound properly, oftentimes what happens is this, this reality called pride flesh begins to quickly grow into the gap. And it grows quicker than the actual exterior skin than the epidermis so that this, this protective skin inside the wound grows so fast that when the skin finally catches up, there's something in the way of the skin trying to heal over the wound. And interestingly, oftentimes, if left untreated, these growths, they just continue to kind of grow and begin to look like tumors on the outsides of horses' legs. They can become very unhealthy and be very problematic. But it's fascinating, isn't it? A horse's body, in its attempt to, as quickly as possible, to heal itself when it gets cut, Sometimes by the, the, the speed of trying to heal its own self can create a lasting problem that if it doesn't get addressed by an external source is going to lead up to more problems down the line. Whereas if it had been properly treated by a vet, it would have healed up just fine much, much quicker. 
I begin because I find, like, I find that this, this metaphor, it's not really a metaphor, but this example from nature, from, from the life of horses, to be really relevant in today's world when we humans talk about this aspiring theme of being healers ourselves. In every step of the way of this journey, we continue to reflect on who God is and then ask, what does that challenge us as these realities, these beings made in the image of God? And it's not a hard argument to make as we experience scripture to say that God is a God of healing, a God who is a healer. Which is why, of all the texts of scripture I could have read from, Old Testament, New Testament, specific examples of healing or big picture ideas, I picked this morning's reading actually because of a really pragmatic part of the text. Because of a rhythm that I feel like Jesus exemplifies as sort of the, the great healer that were, were revealed in scripture. Most of us are, are relatively familiar with the healing ministry of Jesus throughout the gospels. All four of the gospels have Jesus healing people. Jesus is a healer. We don't really need to argue about that, but what can we learn about being healers through this text and through Jesus' life and through observing his footsteps. What I find immediately fascinating as we look at the broader context of Luke chapter four is the fact that if you back up to Luke chapter three, you'll see two things. First, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and then immediately after he is baptized in the Jordan, he goes out, he escapes into the wilderness where he stays for 40 days, he prays, he fasts, he spends time with God, and Luke tells us that he's actually tempted by evil and is able to overcome it. But what is fascinating to me is that Luke chapter 4 is completely predicated on the notion that Jesus has had this huge baptismal experience where he hears the voice of the creator bellowing that this is my son, the beloved, and then immediately after that, Jesus, almost mirroring the Hebrew, the liberated Hebrews in the book of Exodus, goes straight to the wilderness for 40 days where he communes with God, where he is fed not by physical items of bread and of vegetation and of protein, but he's fed by the spirit of a living God who meets him in such a profound way. We're told that this union of Jesus out in the wilderness begins to make evil uncomfortable in the world to the point where it wants to go out and visit and see what's going on. And it's after these two things directly, we're told, at the beginning of chapter four that Luke then tells us, so Jesus has come back from the wilderness on spiritual treat, retreat for 40 days. He's probably finally eaten. And then Luke tells us that he does as he does and he goes to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee and goes to the synagogue, which would be the ancient Jewish people's form of weekly worship. If you didn't live in Jerusalem where the temple was, you would go to your local synagogue. Jesus goes to synagogue and we're not told why, but for whatever reason, the attendant there hands him the, the scroll for the liturgical reading from the prophets. 
Maybe that was an assigned thing. Maybe they just picked somebody randomly out of the group. I don't know. But what we're told is kind of fascinating. It's almost as though they either handed Jesus the scroll and just said, you know, just pick whatever you want to read. Or there was a planned liturgical reading like we have through the Revised Common Lectionary. But Jesus, maybe even knowing that, just read what he wanted to read or felt called to read because we're told that he kind of scans through the scroll and then lands on this fascinating text from a very, very, very long book of the Bible, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's, it's one of the longer books in scripture, but Jesus finds this passage without an iPhone to do a word search. And he reads the following from the scroll. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke then tells us that Jesus, almost in a bit of like liturgical theater, kind of hands the scroll back to the attendant, sits down, and then Luke tells us everybody is literally staring at him. And I don't know if he had planned to say this or if it was in response to the strange moment that came after his reading of this text from Isaiah, but he turns to the group and says, this is being, this prophecy is being revealed, is coming into being in your hearing of it in this time. This prophecy from Isaiah that proclaimed a day of good news for the poor, a day of release for the captives, a day where the blind would recover their sight, a day where the oppressed would be set free, a day of God's, a year of God's favor. Through Isaiah's words, Jesus makes it clear to those that he would have known from his hometown. Nazareth was not a big place. He's essentially letting them sort of see publicly like his calling to ministry, but not just ministry in general, not just ministry maybe going to the temple or being a, an attendant at the synagogue. No, he's giving them a very clear image of what the ministry is to which he has been called. And it is this word from Isaiah. Jesus' ministry will be good news to the poor. It will be the release of captives. It will be the recovery of sight to blind. It will be the freeing of the oppressed. And it will be the embodiment of God's favor in and for the world. I think you could easily sum up Jesus' statement in his hometown synagogue as his ministry is going to be the healing of the world. And I thought a lot about this idea of healing throughout the past week and really even before that as we've kind of worked through this series. And one of the things that kept occurring to me about just even the idea of healing in the middle of a pandemic in the modern world, like, like nobody is going to argue that the idea of healing is a good thing. And most people within our own religious tradition, regardless of their sort of place on the spectrum theologically, conservative or moderate or very progressive, across the board, like people aren't going to push back if you say like, we would think it would be a central claim of our faith that we would be a people about, right, the healing of the world. We should be able to agree on that, I would think. Now, 
surely or, or clearly like strategy and implementation and what exactly is meant by the healing of the world. There might be differenti differentiation there, but the, the base claim of, of a people, of a, of a religion, of a faith whose aim is to heal the world, I would hope we could agree on that. And, and amongst all the goodwill religions of the planet, I would hope we could all come together as religious traditions across this earth and all agree together that we want to see and to be about the healing of this world. It's not like controversial. But I didn't think I needed to write a sermon that argued for the importance of the healing of the world. I feel like it's kind of a given. We are in the middle of a pandemic waiting for a vaccine, right? So we all get the need for healing. And we all get that we should all be about healing. But what, what struck me as I was looking at the different texts and what, as I was reflecting on this idea of, of healing and of healers, because the, the Aspire challenge to us is that we as followers of the Christ be healers, is something about healers sort of in our modern context and in our modern world. And I don't know if this is just a modern phenomenon, but if there's one thing about healing our human bodies, right? If you think about the human body, if there's one thing that our bodies teach us, it's that healing doesn't come through some giant cataclysmic exterior thing that happens overnight that we go from brokenness to healing in one big event. If you look at your body, when you cut your arm or your leg or you break a bone, what is the common denominator for all of these realities? They all take time. It's all done at a small cellular level, cell by cell, rebuilding and healing the wound, re healing the bone. Healing is not a fast thing, but we're a fast people. But healing is not a fast thing. So what do you do when you want to be about the healing of the world on the one hand, but on the other hand, your lifestyle and the way that you go about being a human completely defies the healing process in like all ways. Because healing is not fast. Healing is by nature slow. Just look at your own body. Our bodies are literal science right in front of our own eyes. We can observe it. We can see ourselves get cut and we can watch. And as we get older, we can see that it takes a little bit longer for healing to happen the older we get, especially when it comes to things like back or neck injuries or shoulders and speak from experience. Now take that, take that reality of the human body and move it to the metaphor of the human heart body, if you will. Move it to the human emotional center. Move it to the interior life. And, and, and tell me it's not the case that we're not sort of raised and swimming in a culture and a world that, that sort of tells us to treat our interior world, our emotional center, our heart body, if you will, the same way that we treat a paper cut on our finger. We just expect it to take care of itself. We expect it to heal. 
You see, I would argue that we humans often treat our emotional realities, our hearts, our souls, very much like horses, horses treat the lower portion of their legs when it comes to pride flesh. They experience a trauma going about their regular day. They don't really know how to fix it, but their body does this thing it tries to do to at least keep it sanitary as possible and keep them walking. They're not healed, but it allows them to keep pushing forward, ironically, oftentimes, probably re-injuring that wound and bringing about new ones, none of which have healed properly because a horse can't heal itself. Do we not do the same thing with our own emotional selves? Do we not just allow the trauma inside of us to just pile up? And we just keep moving because we, we don't take it seriously or we told, we're told, we've been told not to take it seriously. We don't realize that like our emotional health, our emotional reality, our heart center is every bit as real as our physical bodies. But we take our physical bodies oftentimes way more seriously. And we don't want to take our emotional centers offline to allow them to heal because we pretty much need them for almost every kind of interaction we do in our daily lives, for our work, for our play. So we keep leaning into them just like the horses keep using their legs that need medical attention. See, friends, often what happens is that we just expect that our internal world's just gonna heal itself like a paper cut something we can slap a Band-Aid on. So we just keep pushing forward, we push through the trauma, we push through the stress and the anxiety and the pain, and what we don't realize is that none of it's going away, it's just, it's just stacking inside of us. It's all needing to be dealt with, but we just keep pushing because that's what we're taught to do, just be strong. And then we hear phrases from people thrown around like, so-and-so, they just need to get over it and move on, right? We apply that to so many things, and we've all heard it. So-and-so just needs to get over it. What if, what if our emotional centers, our, our heart realities, really are a lot like our bodies in that you can't just get over it? The horse just can't get over Pride flesh, it takes a medical intervention at that point. There's nothing else that can be, it's just gonna get worse. What if our emotional centers are a whole lot more like that than we're comfortable with and this idea that we can just push through, be strong, and somehow we're gonna get to the other side. It's kind of the other side of the coin of resilience because sometimes we hear resilience and we think tough. We think just overpower. We just think keep pushing and bulldozing. I think legit resilience is health. It's taking care of your reality internally and externally. And it's asking questions about how do I do this in the long haul? How do I be a healthy human starting now and moving forward? Because I don't think that Jesus' sort of ironic quote that he offers when he's sort of reading the minds of the crowd, when he says, I know what you guys are all thinking, and gals. You're thinking the doctor ought to heal the doctor's self. But Jesus says this to the group that have gathered after he's read this scroll from Isaiah. And then later they want to throw him off of a cliff. Now, Jesus might get more diplomatic as time moves on. He might not. 
You can read the text and argue that for yourself. But the point is, is that Jesus, even in that time, there were clearly healers and physicians and doctors who didn't apply their own medicine to their own lives, didn't apply healing to themselves, but were so busy running ragged trying to heal those around them, trying to fix the world around them, that they were slowly disintegrating. The reason that I wanted to read this text this morning is because of the way that it begins and the way that it ends, and specificity, the way that the text before we get to the text is Jesus out in the wilderness for 40 days with God after his baptism. Jesus clears space and he goes to a place where he can't talk to anybody but God. And he deals with his internal world and his life for 40 days and 40 nights without food. It's radical, and I don't suggest any of you do that. But maybe, maybe we should take some time. Maybe we should figure out a way to get away, to be by ourselves, to actually look inward, to look at our soul space, to look at our heart reality and say, What's, what is going on inside of me between myself and with God? is some kind of a retreat in order, a stowing away somehow, somewhere. And then Jesus, by the end of Luke 4, already at the end of Luke 4, we're told he goes from that synagogue experience to escaping the crowd who wants to throw him off of the cliff to then healing Peter's mother-in-law at Peter's house, then spending the rest of that day healing the sick that they bring to him and casting out the evil spirits of those that they bring to him. And by the end of the day, Luke tells us at the end of chapter four that Jesus at daybreak stows away to a deserted place. He sneaks off. He, he leaves. He sneaks out without telling anybody. And he does this because he knows, he intuits. And I don't think it was swimming in the culture that he lived in at the time, but I think he somehow could intuit the reality that this was not gonna be easy work and that if he was going to do it well, he was going to have to tend to his own soul. He was going to have to reckon the fact that the people from his own hometown in church just tried to push him off of a cliff. Right? That's crazy. That's traumatic. And he took space to think and to pray and to heal. Doctor, heal yourself. Throughout Jesus' ministry in all four gospels, we see a Jesus who escapes, he hides. He turns his phone on airplane mode, if you will, to be anachronistic. Because he got it, he understood, he could intuit that the work that he was entering into was gonna be really hard. And so much of the time, people in the helping profession, because of who they are, because of their vocation, because of what they feel called to do, they just keep helping and helping and helping, but they get to that place where they burn out. Their interior life disintegrates. They get to a place where there's so much pride flesh build up that they haven't dealt with themselves. Or a medical doctor, because they're so busy attending to the physical bodies of everyone around them, they're not taking care of their own physical bodies. They're not getting their yearly physical. They're not exercising or eating healthy because they're doing these crazy shifts. 
I can only imagine what the, the health statistics probably look like, both mental and physical right now, for the healthcare professionals on the front lines in the middle of this pandemic. How are our doctors and our nurses and our technicians, our support? How are they taking care of themselves? How are we helping helpers take care of themselves? What can we do? What can you do? Who do you know that you can encourage and lift up? Jesus got it at the very beginning of his ministry. His first chapter of active ministry is bookmarked with 40 days away, and then by the end of chapter four, he goes away again by himself and sneaks away because Jesus understands that if he's gonna do this work, he's gonna have to find healing and wholeness and restoration himself. So as a people, friends, who we don't need to argue about the healing of the world, I think we all agree with that. What we need to do is challenge one another to be about the healing of the world and start with our own lives, our own interior realities, because as we get healthy, as we get strong, we can legitimately help the world and help those around us seek that same health. So are we speaking truth into our own life and into the lives of one another? Are we encouraging one another? Are we, are we encouraging our vocational healers? And I wanna say this, all Christians are called to be people of healing and to be healers. But those who are called to vocational healing, are we encouraging them? Are we lifting them up? Are we praying for them? I think we're called to. So may it be so, friends, in the name of the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the name of God, our healing source and our healing power. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org and find our giving portal there.